So, Alyssa. Yeah. Around the end of March, I put myself on voluntary lockdown, as did a lot of people I know. My one-to-one Japanese lessons with Moria-sensei? Mm-hmm. Canceled. Right. My gym sessions with Mitch Kondo? Uh, canceled. Yeah, I had been planning my annual hanami party, something I always really look forward to. And hanami would be like when you go drinking under the cherry blossoms, right? Right, exactly. Um, but in the end, we did the responsible thing and canceled it. Oh, a year without hanami? Yeah, it was so really sad. sad. <laughs> But this is also the year that I had my first online nomikai, which is a drinks party on Zoom, complete with a cherry blossom background. It was surreal, to be honest. (laughs) There's just something not quite the same about drinking alone in your room, even if you don't have to worry about last train. Right. I'm Japan Times culture editor Alyssa Smith. And I'm Features Editor Sean McKenna. And this is Recultured, a four-part look at the effects of COVID-19 on Japanese pop culture. In this episode, Japan enters a state of emergency and most of us head online, finding relief on the shores of our very own private islands. So close your Zoom meeting, press pause on your Nintendo Switch, and relive some of the country's more significant pop culture moments with us. Part two, isolate. Alyssa, Mm -hmm. this spring and summer brought new meaning to the term cancel culture. Oh my God, Sean, you might get canceled for that joke. (laughs) (laughs) So Prime Minister Shinzo Abe declared a state of emergency in mid-April. And due to some particulars in the Constitution, recommended we all stay home and be responsible citizens. And for the most part, this worked. The majority of people stayed home. That's when we all started working from home as well. Yeah, I'll be honest, I started going stir-crazy pretty quickly. But one thing that got me through was I started catching up with friends overseas on Zoom, people I hadn't heard from in a while. That's because pretty much everyone I knew was in lockdown, much tougher ones than what Japan was going through. I went to a birthday party with people in four different time zones. It was cool at first, but then the novelty kind of wore off. Hmm. I do remember one Zoom meet where I joined late and a friend was talking about decorating her new island home and having to deal with the neighbors. At first I thought, when did you move? Then I found out she was talking about Animal Crossing. More specifically, Animal Crossing New Horizons, a game in which you play as a character that moves to a deserted island and has to create their own paradise. Uh, Animal Crossing? Isn't that how this whole virus mess started? (laughs) I guess. (laughs) You know... (laughs) A few people at our office were into that game even before the state of emergency. Actually, so were a lot of other people in Japan. The most recent game was perfect for lockdown. Yep. When the world gave us a brand new virus, Nintendo gave us a brand new Animal Crossing. Mm. And if you can't pull off your own Kardashian-style island escape, (laughs) then I guess this is the next best thing. But you're saying the most recent one. How long has this game been around? A long time, actually. The first version, Dobutsu no Mori, which is the Japanese title, came out all the way back in 2001 for the Nintendo 64. And then it was released on the GameCube to the rest of the world as Animal Crossing. In the nearly two decades since, new versions have arrived for every subsequent Nintendo system, including portable ones like the DS. Here's the Japan Times' Tom Hanaway, who's played it since the beginning. So I first played Animal Crossing... The very first one that came to the States, which was Animal Crossing on the Nintendo GameCube in 2002, I want to say. And it's so weird to compare 
the experience now with back then because now i mean i i know so many people that are playing it i know so many friends are like posting memes about it i know so many people that like don't play video games that have bought a nintendo switch to play animal crossing but way back when in 2002 i was in high school at the time and like i didn't know a single person that knew what animal crossing was so it's crazy to see how like it went from this game that i was obsessed with back in high school to like now where i have friends who know more about the game than i do okay so i've never played this game um what's it like um did you play the sims no i played like the 90s version of sim city mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah i do know about the sims i've just never actually played it okay Uh, So Animal Crossing is kind of like The Sims in that you're building a world for your characters. But Animal Crossing is set in a technicolor setting full of anthropomorphic animal neighbors. The goal is just to enjoy your life and communicate with your computer-controlled neighbors and other human players who all have their own islands that you can visit. That sounds pretty stress-free. Yeah, well, the actual goal of the game is to pay off your debt to a raccoon named Tom Nook, but even that plays out pretty peacefully. Unlike most landlords, Nook doesn't pressure you, preferring instead that you just pay and play at your own pace. So basically, you spend most of your time decorating your house, catching bugs, going fishing. It's all pretty idyllic. Okay, I think it's pretty clear that I'm not what the kids would call a gamer, right? (laughs) But your description of Animal Crossing doesn't really match up with my image of what constitutes a popular video game. Though, coming off talking about Terrace House last episode... I guess is like another example of calm Japan, right? Right, yeah. And how the more mundane and possibly calming elements of Japanese pop culture are just as likely to take off as the wacky stuff. Mm-hmm. Can you unlock Marie Kondo as a playable character? <laughs> we haven't reached that level of crossover yet. <laughs> but I guess she'd be a bird named Marie Condor. <laughs> <laughs> Even before the pandemic, people in Japan and beyond were getting hyped for Animal Crossing New Horizons, which came out on March 20th for the Nintendo Switch. When it was released, we weren't even in a state of emergency yet, and still the game sold nearly 2 million units on launch day in Japan, a record. Around the rest of the world, lockdowns were coming into force pretty much in sync with the game's release schedule, and so sales went through the roof. By the middle of the summer, over 22 million copies of the game had been sold. And Nintendo's second quarter profits were up over 400% year on year. Cha-ching, Nintendo. (laughs) Yeah. Why, though, like, why was it so phenomenally popular? Well, it's fun. But I think it was the timing. Imad Khan, who wrote about Animal Crossing for the New York Times and called it the game of the coronavirus moment, tells us a bit more. Obviously, Nintendo couldn't have predicted it, but when... People were, I mean, people were like, you know, scrunching for toilet paper and hand sanitizer. And the idea of being stuck inside for hours and hours on end, you you wanted an activity that literally <laughs> moved at the same pace as real time. And what Animal Crossing did was that it gave kind of a sense of community that uh, I think a lot of people were longing for because all of a sudden you can't meet your friends at a coffee shop, but maybe you can meet them in Animal Crossing. Seeing your little cute little avatars, you know, run around, it was... It was a facsimile of real life, just enough to where it itched that scratch of being able to communicate and be with one another. In the middle of it all, Animal Crossing offered an escape from the glumness of housebound life. So as it became abundantly clear that the pandemic wasn't going to be a temporary thing, the demand for the Nintendo Switch skyrocketed. Shortages for the console became so widespread early on that there was massive price gouging by third-party sellers. 
even loyal fans of the game, like Japan Times contributor Farah Hazin, were thinking about cashing in. I was considering it so hard. I honestly, because I uh, I didn't even know there was a shortage of switches until way later, and my friends were like, "You could sell it for a lot of money." Because even at Hard Off, it was sold out. It was sold out all over the country. Ah, uh, Hard Off, you oddly named <laughs> maker of secondhand dreams. <laughs> Anyway, as the year went on, Nintendo addressed its supply chain struggles by upping the production of the Switch, aiming to produce 30 million consoles by the end of 2020, according to Bloomberg. Still, many were left out in the cold, Mm. and even now haven't found their island escape, including our colleague, Japan Times Food and Lifestyle editor, Claire Williamson. By the time I realized that I actually wanted a Switch to be able to play Animal Crossing, um, they were sold out in Japan. And they were sold out on Japanese Amazon and they were sold out on American Amazon. Even used switches were going for full retail price, if not more. So there was some uh, extreme inflation going on. So I just kind of threw my hands up in the air and went, okay, guess I'm not going to get to fish or plant flowers or any of that. (laughs) Claire. Okay, look, Claire, I know this guy who knows a guy who knows a very wealthy raccoon. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, like Emad said, uh, what Animal Crossing really did, besides offer escapism, was connect people at a time when physical connection was difficult. Really, all the big entertainment trends in Japan did that this year. More after the break. Hey, Lisa, you're something of a gourmand, aren't you? Mm-hmm. What do you do when you're in the mood for some really good food? I go to one of Tokyo's top restaurants. Hmm, that's kind of hard to do right now. What if you don't want to leave the comfort of your own home? Oh, well, then I don't know. Well, then check out Foodie, Tokyo's first gourmet restaurant delivery service. Oh? Foodie delivers from a diverse selection of Tokyo's finest restaurants, most of which have never been available for delivery before. Wow, really? What can I get on Foodie? You can get all sorts, and the list is growing. Some of the favorites include restaurants like Nobu Tokyo and the Oak Door Steakhouse. But it's not just what you can get, it's also where you can get it. Foodie delivers to your home, hotel, office, business party, and even picnics in the park. Picnics in the park? Picnics in the park. I know you like picnics in the park. I do. So this festive season, go to www.food-e.jp for the best fine dining delivery options in Tokyo. Premium dining. Now at your fingertips and available exclusively at www.food-e.jp. The link is in the episode notes. So, Alyssa, mm-hmm. I got a lot of me time this year, mm-hmm. I'm happy to say. And looking at my friends, I found that they all fell into like one of two categories. Those who discovered exercise yeah. and those who discovered baking. Which are you? I am definitely in the first category. Okay. I became obsessed with yoga when my studio started offering online classes. But uh-huh. I also followed the full madness of the baking craze through Instagram. In May, it was actually reported that supermarkets in Japan were experiencing flour shortages because of the number of people cooking up cakes, cookies, and artisanal breads. I was not one of these people. (laughs) The thing is, though, there's only so many pancakes you can cook in isolation before you start to crave some sort of human contact. Yeah, two months after I started sticking to my own neighborhood, I went for a haircut in Shinjuku. 
Bad decision, I know, I know. <laughs> but I'm friends with a guy who cuts my hair, and his business had dropped by something like 90%, so oh, no. I kind of felt like I had to support him. Yeah, for sure. Um, what was Shinjuku like at the time? Was there anyone there at all? No, it was empty. The three-month period following the state of emergency meant that once-bustling places around Japan were almost deserted. Actually, deep dive host Oscar Boyd was smart enough to get on his bike and actually document things. So I think he can describe the mood of the city a little bit better. Yeah, so I live right next to Shinjuku Station, so I was curious to see whether when the state of emergency was announced, it was actually taking effect at all. You know, three and a half million people normally go through Shinjuku Station every day. It's really, really crowded as a place in Tokyo. So I went there just to see whether there was anyone there. And what I saw was actually really, really eerie, so much so that I started to photograph it for the Japan Times. There was basically no one there. It was totally deserted. And this was 7 p.m., 7 p.m. on a Tuesday, so peak, peak rush hour times. Yeah, I could count on my hands the number of people I ran into in Shinjuku when I went. All the shops were closed, so all I could do was get the haircut. I had my mask on the whole time, and the doors and windows were all open at the hairdressers. But what I remember from it was how nice it was to chat with a friend in person again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I miss that. Did you go out ever? I was pretty much in and in. I usually love being out and about, though, so adjusting to being at home all the time was uh, pretty tough. Yeah. Um, When I wasn't doing yoga, I found that I spent a lot of that time watching stuff on YouTube. Yeah. Businesses that we now know do well in a pandemic— Amazon, Netflix, and YouTube. Right. Now, YouTube was already popular in Japan, but the pandemic saw Japanese celebrities and politicians use it in a new way. Culture writer Patrick St. Michel spent a lot of time following trends on the site. Typically, uh, most Japanese celebrities have just steered clear of YouTube until the pandemic set in. Then more of them started popping up on YouTube as a way to connect directly with their fans while also urging them to stay in, you started seeing more older people in Japan turning to YouTube as a source for entertainment as they too were stuck at home, unable to go out in the world. One of the people I loved watching was comedian and influencer Naomi Watanabe. She hosted a weekly dinner session that she live-streamed on YouTube. She's the comedian who got famous in Japan for her attempts at a Beyonce impression, right? Attempts? (laughs) (laughs) Her bang-on impressions of Beyonce then? That's her, yeah. Um, So for a few hours each week, she would eat food and shoot the breeze with those who tuned in, answering questions and just, you know, chatting. Um, sometimes other celebs stopped by, or rather, in a very COVID-appropriate move, zoomed in. Of course. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like a lot of Japanese celebs got in on the online action. I remember coming across a member of the idol group Momorito Clover Z playing Crash Bandicoot online. And there was this enraptured audience basically just there to watch her constantly fall down the pits in the game. (laughs) (laughs) Japan Times staff writer Tomohiro Osaki had a similar experience with one of his favorite performers, a former member of the idol group Morning Musume called Maki Goto. She debuted two YouTube channels during the height of COVID-19 isolation. Well, uh, you know, YouTube did really a lot to help me survive that period of time. Mostly because, uh, do you know Maki Goto? Like, uh, she launched launched YouTube channels in around April, just coinciding with the state of emergency period. So, you know, her making a debut as a YouTuber is like the best thing that's ever happened to me in 2020. <laughs> 
she's never the kind of person that I would have expected to turn into a YouTuber. So uh, that was quite a surprise for me. Politicians got in on the act as well. Tokyo Governor Yuriko Koike, in a rather adept political move, teamed up with YouTubers to deliver messages about social distancing and self-restraint in regards to going out. She also did a video in Tagalog and a live stream in English to appeal to the international community here. Alyssa, I felt seen. Aww. I think her most savvy move, though, was recruiting Hikakin, the most popular YouTuber in Japan, to interview her about coronavirus and explain the now legendary buzzword of the year, Samitsu. Or in English, the three C's that you're supposed to avoid. Okay, let me guess what these are. Okay. Closed spaces, Mm -hmm. crowded places, Mm -hmm. and close contact settings. You got it. Well, it was interesting seeing Hikakin recruited into the COVID-19 messaging like this. Before, he was best known for making silly faces and creating giant aluminum foil balls. <laughs> now he's like the millennial Walter Cronkite for Japan. Social distance As people change their habits, a lot of established creators on the platform suddenly saw a lot more views of their content. Something we learned from Chris Broad, who has 2 million subscribers to his channel, abroad in Japan. Yeah, it's been quite interesting looking at looking at it from that regard. I mean, I so I have a podcast as well, the Abroad in Japan podcast, and and the videos on the channel. And the YouTube videos had an increase in views, I'd say. I, I can't really, I'm not really sure how much the increase was. It could be as much as 20%, maybe in April or May, when the whole of the, you know, the UK, the US, Europe in general, were locked indoors and they didn't have much to do. So I saw a spike in views on YouTube, but on the flip side, the podcast saw a drop in listeners because podcast listeners uh, are typically folks who are you know, commuting to work, got things to do. Uh, without those kind of things to do, they, they stop listening. Okay, so pivoting from what we watch to what we listen to, one of the curious things in Japan is how long CDs have continued to hang around here. There's still record shops everywhere, and something like 70% of music sales last year were still from CDs. But even in this holy space, we begin to see (laughs) real changes in the market, which Jay Kogami, a digital music writer here in Tokyo, whose work has appeared in all digital music and Music Ally, told us all about. Yeah, uh, we just had a, I just had a conversation with the uh, Billboard Japan's team, that's uh, who's in charge of the uh, uh, music consumption. They, uh, they've been collecting data since the uh, COVID. And uh, they had a comparison with the, uh, how the, uh, the choice of music format has been shifted from CDs to streaming. And that uh, consumption-wise, the streaming is winning in Japan. Streaming has been uh, taken over the large portion of uh, people's consumptions since COVID, and that trend is still uh, growing. So while 2020 is definitely the year of COVID, in Japan, it's also become the year of subscription streaming platforms like Amazon Music and Spotify. Other forms of subscription grew as well. While TV was in the doldrums, forced to stop production on new series and instead airing reruns of popular old shows, streaming giant Netflix triumphed with its massive archive of on-demand content and new shows coming out all the time. One of the standouts was Followers, a Japanese drama that caught the attention of Japan Times contributor Farah Hasnain for its rosy depiction of pre-pandemic Tokyo. I watched a ton of Netflix. Um, 
My favorite drama that I would continue to watch would be um, Followers. It's a Netflix original series, and it's directed by one of my favorite Japanese photographers, uh, Mika Ninagawa. And uh, aesthetically, it's very beautiful. It reminds you of why Tokyo is so colorful and glamorous. And it makes you uh, live vicariously through the characters who lived in a pre-COVID-19 world. Viewers also went deep into Korean dramas like Crash Landing on You. This was a breakout hit about a North Korean patrol leader and a wealthy South Korean heiress who crash lands beyond the DMZ in a parasailing accident. I mean, who goes parasailing by the DMZ border? (laughs) (laughs) Better still, thanks to apps such as Netflix Party or just some solid coordination over Zoom, it became pretty easy to enjoy these shows with your friends. Just to make it clear here, mm-hmm. it's not like these services didn't exist before mm-hmm. or they weren't being used before, but the pandemic provided a reason for anyone in Japan who'd been reluctant to figure out how streaming worked to finally figure it out. But the reluctance is kind of understandable. You've seen how hard it's been for Japan to give up fax machines. Yeah, in the Zodiac calendar of Japanese electronics, every year is the year of the fax. Right. <laughs> Were you surprised at the rapid uptake of online services among the bigger entertainers? Because to me, Japan's entertainment industry has often been at odds with the digital world. I think it's more like they didn't want to give up what was working. I'm not surprised, though, because I think for a lot of companies, it really was the only option. Mm. They held out because they wanted to embrace these platforms on their terms. Japanese entertainment companies make control like a real top priority, and the internet can strip them of that. Johnny and Associates, who've managed mega-popular groups like SMAP and Arashi, are one of the most powerful management companies in the industry. And in the past, they've refused to let even photos of their acts appear online. And this is to the point where the album art for their releases would be grayed out on sites like Amazon. But you saw what happened in the early days of the pandemic, right? Johnny's held a giant festival that was streamed online in late March, with all of their acts performing, and even giving instructions on how to properly wash your hands. Mm, Progress. Yeah. Ronald Taylor, a writer for Japanese entertainment site Arama Japan, saw this as a huge development. Because it seemed like every day there was someone that was like uploading all of their all of their music videos to YouTube for the first time ever. There was like somebody having a concert. Like Johnny's had like an entire week of like free live stream concerts. A company that has been the most internet phobic in the industry suddenly is like, hey watch our free concert series on YouTube that we're going to have like live for a week featuring all of our acts. So Japan has been slowly moving this way for some time now. Mm -hmm. I think kind of enviously looking at the massive global appeal of K-pop and seeing how its online presence has helped it succeed. But 2020 has really started to speed up that process. And for a bit there in April and May, pop star Gen Hoshino's song Uchide Odoro, or Dancing on the Inside, seized the online moment. It's a real simple song, lasting less than a minute, with lyrics about staying upbeat while staying indoors, and imagining a day far off in the future where we can all meet up for fun once again. But everyone memed it. Yeah, other singers played drums or guitars to it. Comedians did routines alongside it. I saw a dog play the melody with a bunch of bells. (laughs) And then it just mutated into the absurd. I think everyone just enjoyed feeling like they were a part of something. I think the most unexpected imitation came from Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who appeared in a video with Gen's original clip on the left side, and Abe just kind of chilling at home with his dog on the right. (laughs) 
It was Abe's effort to tap into the zeitgeist to encourage people to isolate. But it came off wrong for a bunch of reasons, including how nice his home looked compared to where many of us were staying. Yeah, it didn't go well for him. And I'm not saying the two were linked, but he didn't stay prime minister for long after that. Yeah, his popularity fell almost as fast as YouTube's grew. Oh, ouch. So for me, all of these developments signaled bigger shifts for Japanese pop culture. And I think most importantly, offered ways to feel connected to others and overcome the isolation during a really trying time. Mm-hmm. And this is where we hop back to our island escape, Animal Crossing, which was becoming more than just a game, evolving into a place where weddings, funerals, and even political campaigns took place. More after the break. Curry may not be the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Japan, but Lillian, co-founder of Kokoro Care Packages, is here to tell us a bit more about her favorite Japanese comfort food. Kokoro Care Packages delivers curated care packages from Japan to over 35 countries around the world, filled with locally made premium quality artisanal Japanese foods. They offer both permanent collections and subscription options, and January's theme is community favorites of 2020. So Lillian, what have we got in next month's box? Any curry? Absolutely. Every month we uh, get requests to bring back some of our most popular products and next month we'll be featuring our community favorites of 2020. So one of the most popular products we've ever featured is actually a special Japanese curry roux that is naturally sweetened with apples from Aomori and sugar beets from Hokkaido. So as you probably know, Japanese curry tends to be a bit more sweet than spicy and ours is a great way to make all natural Japanese curry at home. Another unique product comes from Okinawa, and if you've ever been to Okinawa, you've likely tasted koregusu, which is a local hot sauce that's made from island chili peppers, as well as a local alcohol known as awamori. So we will be featuring our awamori chili paste, which is a great way to add heat and spice to noodles or hot pots. And another favorite was our smoked daikon pickles, which are known as iburigako. So these have been smoked for two days over open fires in Akita Prefecture, and they create this really unique pickle that's great as a side dish for your curry. Thank you, Lillian. Those sound delicious. To help get your hands on these artisanal specialties, Kokoro Care Packages is offering a 10% discount off your first order of a subscription purchase by using the code DEEPDIVE, that's DEEPDIVE all in caps, at kokorocares.com. That's an exclusive offer for listeners of this podcast. You have until December 31st to order the January Care Package, featuring their most popular products of 2020. For more information and that 10% discount, head to kokrocares.com. A link is in the show notes. Sign up today for premium, all-natural care packages from Japan. So as well as being a vital tool for communication, Animal Crossing also became a way for people to recreate familiar rituals and routines. Yeah, when we were talking to our colleague Tom Hannaway, he really emphasized how much building routine through the game helped him create some kind of new normal. I know a lot of people said they they hated going to sleep because they knew the next morning it was just going to be like Groundhog Day. Like they're going to be in their apartment again, working from home again. But Animal Crossing really just helped me just look forward to the day and just not dread the next day at all. So I think in terms of that, it just kept me a very positive plane and it just really kept me 
sane and leveled and just made me realize like, okay, it's another day, but I have something to look forward to. It was just like a little treat every single day. The isolation period of 2020, even in a country like Japan, where nobody was forced to stay indoors, made everybody and everything feel kind of strange. Mm. I don't know if you felt this way, Alyssa, but from the spring to the early summer, every day just kind of felt off. Yeah. Like I'd work weird hours and then I'd stay up way too late and then I'd wake up far later than I used to. And uh, don't tell HR, but the naps. Mm-hmm. The naps were definitely a bonus, though. <laughs> My schedule definitely got thrown off, too. And I think a lot of people grounded themselves by playing things like Animal Crossing or tapping into other platforms where creators' schedules could serve as routine markers. That's because you literally had to play Animal Crossing at the same speed as the world around you. Mm-hmm. On top of that, Animal Crossing became a place for ceremonies. People held weddings in Animal Crossing and funerals for players who died from COVID-19 played out in the virtual space. Remember Hanakimura, who we discussed in the previous episode? Yep. Someone built a whole wrestling ring memorial for her on their island. And then, as others caught on to the appeal, all sorts of businesses and institutions created virtual versions of themselves in the game, or used it as a way to promote events. Imad Khan noticed this trend as well. Sure, yeah. So I think we saw a lot of, you know, wedding receptions happening in Animal Crossing. We definitely saw a lot of companies, um, whether it be fast food companies or even political campaigns use Animal Crossing. It it was really interesting seeing some of the islands and some of the creativity people had. They're like, oh, you know, how did you have your flower arrangement this way? Why didn't I think of that? And this and that. And people went really all out and creating just crazy islands in that game. It became a space for Japanese companies to get creative as well. Wedding dress designer Yumi Katsura used the game to model new designs, while fast food chains like Mossburger and Ibuto Ramen created their own islands, inviting players to visit their in-game branded experiences. As the year went on, and the situation remained dicey in most places, and downright disastrous in countries like the United States, Animal Crossing remained vital. For Halloween in the U.S., some parents had their kids go trick-or-treating in the game rather than send them out into the world. Some people I know even held Thanksgiving get-togethers virtually via the game. Is it a crime to eat another animal on Animal Crossing? (laughs) Oh my god, it has to be. (laughs) (laughs) Like life itself, Animal Crossing wasn't able to avoid the other major storylines of 2020. Mm -hmm. Former Defense Minister Shigeru Ishiba, when he was running to try to become Prime Minister of Japan in September, planned to launch an island in Animal Crossing to help promote himself— before abruptly scrapping the idea after concern he would be breaking Nintendo's local in-game rules. Hmm. Turns out he was onto something, because as the U.S. presidential election heated up, the Joe Biden campaign opened its own island. Players could stop by and learn about the campaign, get info on how to register to vote, and even pick up digital lawn signs to bring to their home islands. But Trump didn't jump on the bandwagon, did he? No, he positively rejected it. His campaign deputy national press secretary said, Joe Biden thinks he's campaigning for president of Animal Crossing from his basement, and that the Trump campaign will continue to spend its resources campaigning in the real world with real Americans. But more than one form of politics actually made its way into the game. So early in the year, Animal Crossing became a space where protesters in Hong Kong could assemble to hold digital rallies. Since the city was in lockdown, the pro-democracy movement couldn't take to the streets. So instead, they assembled on islands, sharing banners and joining other activities. How did China react? Well, they banned the game in mainland China in April, though plenty of players found ways around that, making it an unlikely hit in the country. In the end, it was Nintendo that took direct action. 
they released a press release in late November urging players to not bring politics into Animal Crossing. Politics and corporate advertising, though, weren't what made Animal Crossing such a defining piece of Japanese pop culture in 2020. It was something bigger. Yeah, we all had to rework our lives entirely and had to find routine where we could. The spring when the world went on lockdown was an emotionally draining period for pretty much everyone. Mm -hmm. And Animal Crossing came in at just the right moment. It was a digital getaway for millions around the world, offering escape into a cartoon land with far more upbeat vibes than what was happening outside. It was a place to experience parts of everyday life that had become rarities and help bring people together when life forced them to isolate. So we'll leave you thinking of island paradises as we wrap up this episode. Join us tomorrow when we look at what followed the state of emergency when people tried to salvage a summer and tentatively step back out into the world. Thank you for joining us again. We'll see you tomorrow. Episode 3 of Recultured, Adapt, will be out tomorrow at 7 p.m. Japan time. Thanks to all those who took the time to interview for this episode. Chris Broad, Claire Williamson, Farah Hasnin, Imad Khan, Jay Kogami, Ronald Taylor, Tom Hannaway, and Tomohiro Osaki. This episode was written and edited by Patrick St. Michel and Oscar Boyd, with extra help from our intern, Tarasu Takashi. It was produced by Oscar Boyd. Recultured is hosted by Sean McKenna and me, Alyssa I. Smith. Our theme music was by 4L, and this episode was recorded at the Temple University Japan campus in Sangenjaya, Tokyo. Thanks to them for having us. See you tomorrow. Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama.